Welcome to the Becoming Your Best podcast. We're here to provide you and your team with the resources, tools, and content to achieve your greatest potential. For those interested in additional resources or services, such as the weekly planners, online planners for Chrome or Outlook, keynotes, live training, coaching, or certification, you can visit our website at becomingyourbest.com. Now, when you listen to an episode that resonates with you, we invite you to share it with your family, friends, and team members so that they can experience the same type of motivation and results in their lives. Also, if you haven't already subscribed, please hit the subscribe button. It works on Apple, Stitcher, Google, or whatever platform you're using so that you can get a new podcast reminder each week. Now sit back, let's get started, and we hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome to all of our Becoming Your Best podcast listeners. This is your host, Steve Schallenberger, and we welcome you with us today. We're honored that you could join us and always feel it is a privilege to be together with you. Today, we have a, uh, he's going to feel a little embarrassed that I call him this, but a hero with us, a special guest. He's accomplished so much. He's been a leader for decades. First in a uniform for 20 years as a combat decorated Navy SEAL, and then in commercial business. He was a successful account vice president portfolio manager with United Bank of Switzerland for many years. Then he became a marketing and business development senior vice president for a billion dollar a year company. He later joined a small early stage growth company as an equity partner, and since then, He has developed several employee-owned startups as CEO and Chief Strategy Officer. Welcome, Marty Strong. Oh, that was a lot. Thanks, Steve. (laughs) Oh, man. I've been looking forward to this, Marty. And and our listeners may or may not know that every single week we have probably 20 people that would like to be on this show. And when I learned about Marty, I, I said to myself, okay, this would be fun. We've got to have him. And He has a unique perspective, so we're so glad to have you with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. You bet. Well, I'd like to tell you just a little bit more about Marty, then we're going to jump right into our visit today. While there are many successful leadership books on the market written by former special ops professionals, Marty's depth of experience in analyzing and leading businesses sets him apart from the crowd. It provides the reader with the appropriate and relevant commercial context to reflect on how Navy SEAL leadership concepts successfully convey outside of the military. And so I'm looking forward to seeing that. Uh, He has a great background. One of the things I want you to tell us about, in addition to his undergraduate degree in business, a graduate degree in management, he's a master's black belt in Lean Six Sigma. He's the author of nine novels and two business books, one to come out, very soon, which we're going to talk about today. But Marty, what is a master's black belt in Lean Six Sigma? Like, I'm ready to defend myself. Oh, uh, don't. It was more about know your adversaries better than themselves kind of a thing. So I'm, a, I'm more of a visionary dreamer concept kind of a guy. I always have been. That was probably my strong suit, even in the SEAL teams. I was a, I was a good mission planner because I always saw it in three dimensions. I always saw the problem sets in that same manner. And yet when you get into business, there's such a focus on measuring and 
and microanalyzing all the results, all driven from past activities, right? Which is fine. And when you're starting out in business or you don't you don't have the credentials yet and you're not up, you know, at the CEO level like I am now, you can voice that maybe they're spending too much time on this, but they look at you and go, okay, yeah, but you don't understand because you've only been in business for a year or two or three. You'll get it someday. So I thought, all right, rather than try to, you know, fight them all the time, I'll join them. So I um, I enrolled in a Villanova Six Sigma course, which essentially there's green, black, and then master black belt levels in huge organizations, you know, like the Raytheons, Microsofts of the world. The master black belt would sit at the top, kind of like the Yoda, and be responsible for quality assurance, quality control, philosophy, procedures, and the dynamics, all the way through the organization, reporting to like a CEO. And then the army of black belts are usually at the, the leaders at the division level in the business, these big businesses. And then the green belts are kind of like your foot soldiers running around making sure all the quality assurance is done. But it's about micro-measuring the Six Sigma is how many errors you have in 1 million executions, whether it's making a widget or attempting to make a sale. It doesn't really matter which. Yeah, great. Well, yeah, it's really uh, a great background in combination with a lot of the other things you've done. And when you apply good judgment and vision to that, it works even better. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> it's, working, it's working so far. Yeah, indeed. Well, let's start with your, uh, Marty, tell us about your background, including any turning points in your life that's had a significant impact on you. I'd say the, the first one was my, uh, my father worked for the Department of the Army. He was a, a Navy sailor during the Korean War, which influenced both me and my brother eventually to join the Navy. But when I was 11 years old, he, he took a job in Japan. So the whole family moved from Omaha, Nebraska to Japan. And we were there for four years. And not so much that you're immersed in the Japanese environment, the economy and, and society, because when you can't speak the language, it's kind of tough. But it did get me out of the comfort zone of Nebraska. And it was a pretty significant impact on me. I think it stayed the same way for the rest of my life, where I could accept and understand other cultures. We did lots and lots of trips and saw a lot of things, got to climb Mount Fuji when I was 14. Then my parents got a divorce. So that was... <laughs> That was the negative side of that four-year experience. So I ended up back in Nebraska with my, my two siblings, my mom, who had severe uh, schizophrenia, and she also was uh, a heavy drinker from the divorce. So we went through a bunch of turbulent times there. My mom kicked me out of the house, and by then my father lived in Honolulu, Hawaii. So I got on a plane and uh, flew to go live with him for the next couple of years before I went to the Navy at age 17. So I ended up in four different high schools in four different years as a result. I ended up one of about 28 white kids or Howleys in a school that was predominantly Asian American in Honolulu after four years in Japan. So all those things were very traumatic and life-changing when you're a teenager, as you can imagine the angst of uprooting constantly. But I have to say, it's probably what created the psychological resilience all in that allowed 125-pound 17-year-old to make it through SEAL training. Mm. Wow, that's quite a background. Yeah, and I'm only 17 at this point in the story, so. <laughs> yeah, well, you're right. You know, you, you live or die in that kind of a situation, and you grow up quick, don't you? You do. And I was the oldest oldest kid, so I took on a lot of leadership responsibilities. You know, old school relatives would tell me, you're the man of the house now, or, you, you know, you've got to be responsible. And, and I took that to heart. Tried to do the best I could. Tried to shield my brother and sister from a lot of things. And I'd get jobs, and I'd give them money and try to help them live a normal life as much as possible. But again, all those things, you know, good and the bad, you have to look at it. It, it all ends up contributing to who you are. 
And luckily, both my brother and sister and I all turned out really well. You know, there's there's a lot of people that kind of go left instead of right on that that point of decision in life, whether you're a victim and and it's happening to you and that's just the way it's going to be forever. Or, yeah, I'm a victim, but I'm not going to let it happen to me anymore. And I'm going to go down a path where I take charge and control of my world, my life, et cetera. So we kind of went that direction. And again, I think it, it made all the difference eventually. Yeah, well, that's great. And I'm glad you brought that up because life gives us the opportunity to grow. And it doesn't do things to us, it does things for us. That's just what you seized upon. And that's really great. Well, you wrote a book that's coming out. You've written a number of books, but one that's coming out in January entitled Be Visionary. Do you mind just uh, sharing with our listeners what the book is about and why did you write it? I wrote a book called Be Nimble. How the Creative Navy SEAL Mindset Wins on the Battlefield and Business that, that was released January of this year. And that was basically my treasure chest of ideas of how to lead through chaos and crisis. I've done a lot of scaling operations and there's a lot of, it's always exciting when you're growing, but there's a lot of stress. There's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of emotion. There are a lot of people that get to their, you know, they reach their Peter principle. They, that's as good as they're going to get. So sometimes you have to change out teammates. You got to repurpose people. So I, I packed all that into the first book because that was primarily what people were coming to me and asking me to either mentor or coach or advise on. And so I said, well, I'll just write all this stuff down. I mean, I've been doing this pro bono for a long time. And one of the chapters focused at some point, how to take the time to open your mind up and, and start to think in a visionary manner, to look further and further and further away from today into the future, and also 360 degrees of coverage rather than just kind of in a narrow lane. And then how do you convert that into a, an operational strategy, something that you can actually pursue and conduct in a business manner? It doesn't matter if you're for-profit, non-profit, it could be a political entity, it all works. You know, it works. You write a book and then by the time it's going through editing and everything, a lot of time goes by. So if you don't start writing the second book, it's going to be a while. So I started fleshing it out and be visionary strategic leadership in the age of optimization. Optimization was kind of the result of the response to that one chapter in the first book and the realization that I had. And I, I have a private equity oriented board that I report to. And there's bankers and finance people that have been in my past that, that you have to report to in brief. And you realize they focus a lot on what bankers and, and money people focus on, which is the micro accounting of past financial activities. And then there's this assumption that that is going to give you a great navigational aid to the future. But in reality, what they really want to do is they want you to attack all the weak areas and shore them up and, and you know patch them up. And it's less about what, you, what you're going to look like and what you can do in the future or should do in the future, and more about this is what you have done. Let's fix this. So it's a very rear view mirror approach to leading and managing. And I was also seeing this at the same time I was finishing up being nimble. So I put those concepts in be visionary, both as a leader, how can you, you know, set yourself apart, set time aside to think different kinds of thoughts, zoom out as much as you zoom in every day and make that a habit. Do, do it every day. I suggest 20 minutes a day, seven days a week. Because eventually when it's a habit, you start looking at your checklist, your to-do list, your dashboard, your KPIs, and people reporting to you with that, with that information, you go, yeah, but it's not relevant because I'm thinking about what I think I see coming, the trends that, that are coming. And this seems like it's important to you. Got it. Check it. You measured it. But it's not taking us where we need to go because your mind's been thinking that way because you've started exercising that part of your brain. So that's the, kind of the first lead into the book. And the second part is how do you convert that into an actionable strategy? 
Okay, thanks for that overview. And Marty, from your experience, you just kind of touched on this a bit. How can we learn to improve our visionary skills in a way that can be applied both personally and professionally? Well, everything I just said about the vision piece absolutely should be applied to your, your, per, your personal, your professional, and your organizational future. So if you are a leader or the leader of an organization, then by all means, you should be applying that. And in the personal, I look at it, you probably run into this in privately owned companies. I'll sit down and they want to talk to me about strategy and I go, fine. So you're the owner, right? Yeah, I'm the hundred percent owner. What's, so what's your exit plan? And they stare at me. Well, what do you mean an exit plan? Well, what, what do you want out of this for yourself? You know, so you started this company four years ago, six years ago, you're working 80, 90 hours a week. What's the end game? Where do you want it to go? And you're probably not surprised, but most people probably be surprised that probably 80% of those business owners haven't given a thought to it. They started the business. They started grinding on day one. 10 years later, they're still grinding. One response was a very eloquent and very highly detailed briefing back to me of the entire business development plan. And then when, it, when the person was done, I said, that's a great operational plan for how to grow your business from where it is now. You know, But what's your strategy? Where, where do you want the business to go? Where do you want to be at the end of this personally? So I think it's a gap in individuals, whether they're family members, you know, fathers, mothers, looking at what it is they want to do, personal growth. And that exercise will give you some ideas of what you can be or might be. And then you could do that same, you know, the second step, which is how do you back plan from that point in the future, whether it's an easy segue to something like losing weight or whatever, because there's a metric, right? But what if you just want to be able to run a marathon? period. Just want to just finish a marathon. You don't care what the time is. Okay. So that's the goal. And you want to do it 24 months from now. You want to be in the New York City Marathon or the Marine Corps Marathon in Washington, D.C., whatever. So you back plan. How many miles do I have to put in? What do I have to do as far as my health? And it gives you a purpose to back plan and, and hit these milestones, which you can do in a baby step, one step approach at a time. That's for you as a person. You can apply the same thing professionally. Where do you want to be in your industry, your, your market? within your own corporation or company, if you're not in charge, or if you are in charge and you're the CEO, like I'm on my 13th year, is this what you want to do forever in perpetuity, you know, or is, is there something else you'd really be happier doing and how are you going to segue out with the least amount of disruption? And lastly, I think we've already hit on how do you take your organization into the future? Yeah. Oh, great. I love it. Marty and I were visiting about becoming your best, the 12 principles of highly successful leaders just before we started. And we were just talking about how universal these principles are, but not everybody is aware of them, uh, nor do they practice them. Uh, But I I know Marty would uh, chuckle a bit because the first one of the 12 is uh, be true to character. It's all about honesty and integrity and respect. You know, that's a huge one that And if you don't have that one, leaders are going to have a big problem. But number two, and this is to really give support to his book, Be Visionary, is highly successful leaders lead with a vision. That's the second one we identified. And that's job number one, you know, whether it's personally or professionally. And number three principle is manage with a plan. And Marty just covered all those right there in a few minutes. I love his unique perspective of how he'll talk about these principles. And I think that's why I'm excited to read your book. I'm going to gain new insights that I haven't had about how to be better at doing that. 
let's shift gears a little bit uh, and lessons derived from you being a Navy SEAL. And what are some things that you learned from being a Navy SEAL of how you can apply leadership lessons in other areas of our life, particularly in the vision area or strategic area? So SEALs operate more in the operational and tactical world. They're a small unit, they're an elite unit, so they don't get involved in big Navy strategy or national strategy. But what they are is they are the instrument of national strategy. So oddly enough, usually when when special operations forces are applied, it's for a national strategic interest. So it's always been important, I think, to me and other leaders in the SEAL teams to stay on top of what the national strategy is, what the trends are, what the strategic threats are, because it kind of gives us the precursor signpost, blueprint, whatever, to where we're probably going to be employed next. And so that's you know, the environmental ge- geography kind of thing. Geopolitical realities where it might be employed next. The missions themselves may not change much, but where the leadership, let's say at the operational level, conveys and, and also could supplement, and, and I've, I've used this in other examples for business strategy development, is the flexibility that special operations leaders are taught and all their op- operating enlisted guys, everybody's taught the same way, when whatever your assumptions are for your mission have completely fallen apart. So, you, you know, the movies, for the most part, always show the, the crisis on the target when, when somebody gets shot or a helicopter doesn't show up. But what really happens is you start off with a whole lot of assumptions you're fed, just like business people are. This is the lay of the land. This is the, the risk you're going up against. This is the number of bad guys. This is what they're going to be armed with. This is the distances required. This is the weather, blah, blah, blah. And then you make a plan and then they make you rehearse it and they make you brief it until you've memorized the plan. And anybody that's ever been in the special operations world in any of the services knows at this point, they're all rolling their eyes because that plan's never going to happen. Ah, ah. It, it's just not going to happen. There's too many micro assumptions building up this mm. base wow. foundation of assumptions. So it's kind of a house of cards. So what happens is a lot of the failure in the plan happens before you ever get to the target. Where in like movies, they show all the failure to the plans happening on the target. And the reason that's key to this conversation is to train leaders to have a nimble, agile mindset, to be ready to roll with the reality of the assumptions changing before they ever get to the target means that they're in a constant state of being open-minded and intellectually humble to what's happening in the reality in front of them. And when that reality changes, they don't sit back and you know close their eyes and say, I hope it goes back to the way we planned it. I hope that the weather doesn't do what it looks like it's going to do. I hope we get the helicopter we asked for. We don't have to go in by submarine or whatever. whatever. You don't do that. You immediately say, okay, this is reality. Everybody's looking at you. Okay, what's, what are the new set of circumstances? You lay them out. You adjust the plan. You move with the new reality until that reality changes. What that does, and you can train a management team to do this. All they do in the SEAL teams is they do it through scenario-based training. You're in a constant state of being fed a situation, and then they inject changes to the assumptions and the team has to reroute, rethink, reimagine, reinvent. And this is all, I mean, there's a lot of detailed planning to this. This is how many fuel hours, what kind of aircraft, how many aircraft, about refueling of those aircraft. All of that is swinging around by that, the tail of that dog when they change those assumptions. So there's, there might be hundreds and hundreds of other people that are supporting you that have to change their plans too. And you get very comfortable with that being the normal way things are going to be. In business, you hardly ever see any organizations do this. So they don't have the resilience then 
when the the assumptions change, when things adjust. They also don't have the flexibility to see a need for a change in strategy for what it really is because they're in denial. Like any kind of black swan event like the pandemic, you basically had your three different behavioral responses you had. I'm going to knuckle down and believe this is just going to go away. I'll double down on, on the past and what we do. You have kind of a hybrid that do the denial for a short period of time and then kind of grudgingly go, okay, I guess we're going to have to reinvent who we are. And then you have that third group, the rarer group that immediately says, everything's changed. Get everybody in the room. We got to figure out what we're going to look like starting today. That's basically, that's how that transitions from the SEAL and the experience that, that SEALs train to and the boardroom or management organizations. Oh, I love all the parallels. That gets back a lot to your book of being nimble too. It's all human nature. Everybody has the same human brain. We're all, we all function fear or failure, fight or flight. It's all the same thing. You have to just train to it and prepare for it and create habits that put you in an advantageous position when it happens. Because it's going to happen. Yeah, that's great. The most successful teams or organizations that I've seen do exactly what you've talked about. They have a plan, but they're also anticipating all of the things that can go on and ready to jump if things go south in one area. And they also help create a, a culture that's like that, that we're learners, we adapt, and uh, we have one thing in focus that we want to be among the very best at what we do. And then from there, everything else, you know, you put your plan in place and sometimes things go south. And so I love what you're talking about. Thank you for sharing this insight. And what have you done, Marty, in an organization when you have people that are resistant to change? Yeah, you mean like every single solitary human organization on the planet? Well, you, you talked about culture and I think, okay, it's great. You have an enlightened, let's say you have an enlightened CEO that believes in all these things. You know, they've read your book and they're following your 12 principles and they've read my book and they're, they're reading all these books. And, and then they turn around and they've got a thousand or 80,000 people reporting to them. They're not going to get anywhere unless they take the next step and turn that into a cultural requirement at the next level of management, the next level of management below that. And then they have to follow up and check and make sure that it's actually embedded and it's, it's happening. You got to go all the way to how we're hiring people. So if you hire people to go into a culture, if the culture is all about fitness or the culture is all about fashion or it's all about high quality, you can't bring in people that aren't that way. They don't think that way. don't care about those things. I don't care if it's an accountant. Find an accountant that has a fashion sense. Have somebody that's compatible with the culture that you've either created or you're trying to create. So it's the same thing with these things. You got to find people, and I'll use the accountant thing again, don't just hire the accountant because the accountant's resume checks all the boxes. You need an accountant that can come in and be comfortable working with other people, including non-accountants, being thrown into a project team to try to solve some strange problem because they happen to know how to you know, manage spreadsheets, not because we need them to follow the, the gap rules of accounting. And look for a sense of humor. A sense of humor is a huge part of all special operations personalities and it could be nervous sense of humor, but it's basically when things are going really bad, there's an old rule at SEAL training, the selection course. When things are going really bad, look around and the people that are laughing and joking about it, get close to them. It's contagious. And that's the right way to react to stress is to laugh it off and come up with a new plan. The people you see that are moping and getting all worried and talking about how bad it is, stay as far as you can you know, from them. Well, it's the same thing when you're hiring. So you can be struggling to create a cultural organization, but if you haven't started at the input side, you're just going to have, you're going to be losing the whole time. So yeah, you got to push it all the way down. I spend a lot of time and I've been in organizations where 
that was established. And then we changed out a human resources senior person. We forgot to go down and have them drink the Kool-Aid. And all of a sudden, a year later, we're getting some weird reports that people are rolling out at 430. And, you know, we're in a big crisis pricing exercise and people are leaving like it's a day job, which wasn't part of the culture. We had a we had a culture that was kind of work hard, play hard. So if we were in a surge, everybody would work. We had lodging set aside and people could stay and everything. But then we'd give them like the whole next week off. Mm. You know, we, we were very good about that. But then there was groups who came in and said, thanks for the week off, but I left, I'm leaving at four o'clock during the surge period. And when we investigated it, the root cause was the change in the HR management. And the real root cause was we didn't make sure that our cultural philosophy had been imparted into this new person that was at this critical gatekeeper position. So it really was all on us. We, we did it to ourselves. Well, great stuff. I mean, I... I'd love to just visit another hour or so with Marty today. I'm always a little bit surprised how fast these interviews go, and we're at the end. So before we end, uh, do you have any final tips that you could share with our listeners today, whether on a personal or professional level, that would help them in their leadership and overall success in life? On the personal side, and I spend a lot of time working with transitioning veterans, and they 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 face the same life choices, somebody coming out of high school, looking at the big wide world, or somebody graduating from college, looking back in hindsight now, I think the pressure always has been, whether it's society or parents, putting this pressure on people, this expectation that you're supposed to become a a home run hit right out of the box. Hmm. So that's one thing. The second thing is that there's no such thing as a second chance at coming out of the box. You have, and especially in this country, you have the ability to become an accountant, work for four years, decide you want to be a saucier, go to chef school at night, work at a restaurant for 10 years, decide you want to, you want to write a magazine, become a magazine owner, publisher, writer, whatever, do that for X number of years, go take painting classes and decide to do greeting card artwork or something. You can do any of those things, all of those things, you can do them in parallel. And I, I just stunned, it doesn't matter what the age is, the conversation with an 18-year-old, a 23-year-old, and a 40-year-old coming out of uniform is the same anxiety that I have to make the perfect choice. And that perfect choice has got to be something that lasts for the rest of my life. That's way too much pressure. So think and train about the thing that you're interested and passionate about, why you still have the day job, why you're still in your last couple of years of high school, why you're still in college. Prepare for that. Go do it. Apprentice yourself out. Learn from the, from the ground up. You'll either like it, love it, or you'll leave it, right? And then do it all over again. On the professional side, that 20 minutes a day thing, it just sticks with me. I noticed when I get sucked into problem solving over a couple of weeks that I'll look up and realize I haven't, I haven't been doing that same, that same practice. And I, I get this weird feeling in the back of my head, like I, there's a train coming and I can't see it coming because I haven't been looking. So I think that's probably the strongest thing for professionals, whether they're individuals or, or people running organizations. Put in that 20 minutes to think big thoughts. Do you have a structure to that, Marty, when you do that? I don't. The first thing I do, though, I practice what you know, they call intellectual humility. I try to clear my mind of all my recent victories or defeats. So emotionally, I'm open to be curious. So intellectual curiosity is kind of the second step. Now I'm open to, to think about anything and, and consider all inputs from all sources in all directions. And then... What that sets me up for at the end of that 20 minutes is the third step, which is more kind of the daytime application of it, which is 
intellectual creativity. I don't think you can get to honest intellectual creativity, changing the world, changing your world or your, or your organization's future, unless you're completely clean and cleansed of the, of the baggage. And if you haven't actually allowed yourself to look everywhere, 360 degrees for solutions and answers, because otherwise what you're doing, you think you're being creative. You're just basically reinventing the wheel. You're just pushing, you're pushing the same formula, same football play forward. You're not really being creative. So that's how I do the first two. Intellectual humility and curiosity happens in that 20 minutes, range wide and far when you're in that mode. And that sets you up to start being much, much more intellectual creative down the road. Okay, well, that's great. And when do you find is the best time to do that? I do it in the morning. I'm an early riser, so I do it sometime around 5.30 every morning. On weekends, I might do it in the afternoon. For some reason, it seems like on Saturdays and Sundays, there's just kind of a moment. My wife likes to take naps around 2 o'clock, and I'll find myself kind of in between tasks, whatever, but you have to make it a habit. And it's like working out or something, you know, you, you know, if you haven't, if you've been doing that and then you don't do it for a couple of days, you got that weird feeling in the back of your mind, like there's something important missing from your life. It, it's the same way if you, if you establish this as a practice. And you love doing it, don't you? Oh yeah. 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 It's, it's, I've, I've had some insights that have been significant and I'm glad I, I'm glad I stumbled on it. And I'm glad I keep, I keep practicing that, that habit. Okay, that's great. So, Marty, how can people find out about what you're doing? Yeah, so the, the cleanest way probably is to go to my website, MartyStrongBeNimble.com. Access to all my books, my novels, and my business books are there, and my articles. I'm also on Amazon.com. Okay, perfect. Well, it has been a delight to have Marty Strong with us today. Uh, once again, thanks for your service to our country and for all of the really cool things that you're doing today. and blessing so many people. So thanks for being with us, Marty. Yeah. And thanks for making making this uh, a possibility for me. I enjoyed it, Steve. Yeah, me too. And to all of our listeners, we're so grateful for you. You are an inspiration to us. Literally, the fact that you're here, that you're listening, that you're looking for ways to do better, to be happier and stronger and more effective in the things that you do. And this is a blessing to all of the people in your life. So thanks for joining us. This is Steve Schallenberger wishing you the best today and always. Thank you for listening to the Becoming Your Best podcast. If there was something in this podcast that you felt would be helpful for a family member, a friend, or even a coworker, we invite you to share this podcast with them now while you're thinking about it. Also, remember to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Now, for additional resources and tools, such as how to join our monthly P performance coaching program or how to get certified as a trainer or coach or schedule a workshop or keynote, you can visit our website at becomingyourbest.com. We're here to provide you and your team with the resources, tools, and content to achieve your greatest potential. So thank you for listening and have a wonderful day and a great week.